Welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. It's uh, really one of the hardest things to tell somebody to do is be happy, like be glad, rejoice. Because usually, of course, if you're telling somebody uh, to rejoice, it's because they, well, aren't rejoicing. And if they aren't rejoicing, well, there's probably a reason they aren't rejoicing. For example, maybe you're at a Super Bowl party where you attended, hoping to see the New England Patriots lose. And then they don't. And your friend Mark, who's from Boston, turns to you and says, come on, isn't it a great day today? Be happy, smile, it's a great day. And he's right, of course, right? Patriots, Tom Brady winning another Super Bowl is a great day for him, but not for the rest of us, not for those of us who love, you know, goodness and justice and everything else that is right in the world. Of course, the same thing was true of the next year. The Patriots lost, and that was a great day for me, but not for him. Which is another thing that about happiness in this world is that it feels like most of the time the thing that makes one person glad or rejoice makes another person sad. We tend to live our lives and view the world as if we are in perpetual competition with each other for resources that we consider to be scarce. We're in competition with each other, and in competition there are, of course, winners and losers, and it is a great day for the winners and usually a bad day for the losers. In other words, there are people who are happy, glad, and rejoicing, and people who are not. This Psalm 97, we talked about this a little bit uh, last week, Psalms aren't necessarily direct communication from God to his people. Actually, psalms and a lot of times are communication from his people to God or from his people to his people. And the psalm is one of those psalms. The psalmist here is the guy. And he thinks he has found the answer. He thinks that he has found the thing, the one thing that everyone on earth should be really, really excited about. The one thing that should bring a constant smile to every face of every person on the planet all the time, every day, and that is the fact. The Lord reigns. The Lord reigns, he writes, let the earth be glad. Let the distant shores rejoice. This is not just for a people of a certain nation or race or gender. This is not just for people of a certain economic situation. This is not just for married people or for single people, for old people or for young people. No, this guy is convinced that this fact that the Lord reigns should make everyone, yes, you, yes, me, the whole earth, the distant shores, rejoice. And be glad. Now, he doesn't just say that and expect you 
to believe him. He does have his reasons uh, lined up. He starts off with this idea that, uh, well, clouds and thick darkness surround him, which actually sounds a little foreboding, you know, because uh, every time when the aliens come to attack the earth, right, the spaceship kind of billows through this my family, we just watched one of the Independence Day movies last, last week, you know, the, and it just, it's always clouds and thick darkness. But I don't think that's what he's going for here necessarily, although the, the power might have been. But the real reason for rejoicing, he goes on to explain, is the fact that the platform of God's government, the foundation of his throne, righteousness and truth let that sink in for just a second a government whose platform whose core operating principles whose entire agenda is righteousness and truth I personally have no idea what that would even look like In my experience, in my lifetime, I cannot think of a government or a leadership whose sole operating inclination was righteousness and truth. I mean, I know a lot of them who said that that's what they were about, but none of them actually were. And we're so used to people, people in leadership, people in power, throwing these words around. Righteousness and truth as promises of what they are going to do how they're going to act, but then not following through. Frankly, we don't even know what these words mean anymore. People with world experience read about a government who says, oh, foundation, righteousness, and truth. Immediately we ask, righteousness according to whom? Whose truth are you happening to be referring to at this point? You see, we have now been ushered into the age of alternative facts, where those in power over us pick and choose what aspects of truth they are going to use to justify their actions to leverage our loyalty. We live in a world where righteousness, i.e. doing the right thing at the right time, is completely defined by whoever happens to be in power at that moment. I mean, not that we couldn't maybe imagine that such a government, such a thing might exist. We can. In fact, really, when we kind of think about it outside of the discussions and outside, when we just think about reality, actually, righteousness and truth aren't really that complicated of concepts. They're actually very clear. They're quite obvious. They're almost intuitive. The problem is they're just usually ignored or vetoed, or overridden, or disregarded. So that even if there was such a leader, such a king that comes with a commitment to righteousness and truth, well, chances are that he would get overruled. Except for apparently not this king. 
The psalmist here says that the Lord not only is his government founded on righteousness and truth, but that he also has the power to back it up. I think that's part of where the clouds and the the, the shrouds of darkness come in. Because then he goes on. Fire goes before him and consumes his foes on every side. His lightning lights up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. Psalmist here is convinced that all the earth should rejoice, be glad that the Lord reigns because he is so powerful, he is so strong, nothing can stand in his way, not his enemies, not the mountains, not nothing. His righteousness and truth will prevail because he is just that strong. Which is an astounding declaration, really, in light of the world we live in, right? This king whose government is founded on righteousness and truth, and nothing can stop him. And yet, in our world, kind of seems like the anti-righteousness and truth gang is kind of running rampant these days. Yes, another week, another mass shooting in our country, which brings us to, I think, 306, 307, unless there's been one, you know, in the last three hours that I haven't checked up on. Prime Minister of country, assassinated just this past Friday. War in Ukraine, of course, continues to rage on. Millions and millions of displaced people wandering homeless throughout the world. And that's just the stuff that makes the news. This doesn't even touch The individual stuff that you're going through, the individual stuff that I'm going through, all the time. The Lord reigns on a platform of righteousness and truth. Nothing can get in his way. Then why the world as we know it? And not just the world as we know it, but really it's the world that the psalmist knew as well. See, we shouldn't read the Psalms and think that they are composed in some biosphere of Edenistic goodness. I mean, Middle East was a perpetual place of war and famine, feuds, corruption, illness. Middle East of that day, they didn't have electricity. You know, so just feel that for a second. In light of all that, what would make this psalmist write these things? Because he's not being coerced, right? He's not a part of this movement where it's really cool to write psalms. And like you get on the radio if you write the right psalm and if you put the right kind of music. And then there's all these royalties that come. I mean, that's not the vibe that this person lives in. We don't actually even know his name. Actually, I think the reason that he can say all these things in a world that was falling apart around him, just like it is around us, is that this psalmist has actually experienced God. It's like he knew him. And not in some, like, 
super exclusive way, like the, only the super special people get the super special vision that the super, like only in the Bible kind of vision that. But I think he had, had, had experienced God in, in, in a way that made him walk around thinking to himself and actually saying to us, the greatness of God was well, just obvious. It's clear as day. The heavens proclaim His righteousness. He writes, just look at the sky. You want to know what God is like? Look up. All the peoples see His glory. This guy is convinced that God's goodness and His righteousness and His truth and His power, these aren't some little tiny things that you have to carve through ancient temples with the, you know, the booby traps and the weight and the shift to figure out with the hieroglyphics. This guy is convinced. No, God's power and goodness and truth. Just look up. Just look up. It's right there. It's obvious to everyone. There's something for him about how the earth is constructed. The heavens, the stars, the clouds, the order of the universe. God's righteousness and glory are obvious to him. And as far as he's concerned, it's obvious to all peoples. All peoples can see God's glory. I love how he puts this next verse. All who worship images are put to shame. Those who boast in idols, worship him. All you gods. Really, I think he was trying to say, worship him, dummies. In light of the greatness of God, everyone else who puts their hopes for happiness, for security, everyone who had sworn allegiance to something other than God, who had expected something else to come through for them. They should be ashamed of themselves. Because so obvious is God's greatness that it is indisputable. Even when you take into consideration all the troubles of this world. Yes, there are mass shootings and injustices and wars and troubles. But that's not what God has done. That's what man has done. Psalmist here is calling us to look at what God has done. Because when we look at what God has done, if we would just take a moment to consider the works of God that shine and radiate with His glory, even in the midst of the evils of humanity. See, no, no matter how evil evil is, God's righteousness outshines it. No matter how evil evil is. And yes, we all know how evil evil can get. God's righteousness outshines it. If we would just look, if we would just have the eyes to see, we would have to admit that even out of our toughest times, the times where life looked the bleakest, God's presence in those moments outshines the badness of it. It's been true in my life. Out of every experience of brokenness and loss, God's righteousness and truth has outshone the darkness of the bad. Even, by the way, the bad that I brought on myself. 
Of course, this is not to say that God is just going to sit back and let evil just keep on being evil. He's not going to just sit back and let injustice continue to be unjust. Which, of course, is the other reason we should rejoice. According to verse 8, he says, Zion hears and rejoices and the villages of Judah are glad. Why? Because of your judgments, O Lord. Because of your judgments, O Lord. It's a curious thing about the Psalms. As we spend this summer in the Psalms, and if you read through it, one thing you'll notice all throughout the Psalms is that uh, the fact that God is going to judge the earth is always, always regarded as good news in the Psalms. Which, like in our day, there could hardly be like a more like, you know, square peg, round circle, cultural concept, right, than that. I mean, just imagine walking up to some random people on, person on the street, looking them in the eye and saying, good news, God is going to judge you. I mean, it's not going to get you very far. And yet it's there all throughout the Psalms. Zion hears rejoices. The villages of Judah are glad because of God's judgments. And the reason for this is that the psalmist had a different perspective on the idea of judgment that we do. And here, uh, C.S. Lewis actually has a really helpful, actually a whole chapter on his, in his book, Reflections on the Psalms, but just a little snippet that he reminds us of. Here, uh, Lewis writes, The ancient Jews, like ourselves, think of God's judgment in terms of an earthly court of justice. The difference, he said, is that the Christian pictures the case to be tried as a criminal case with himself as the accused. The Jew pictures it as a civil case with himself as the plaintiff. Now, we might not all be like judicial experts or anything like this, uh, but this is, it's a very different perspective. When you think of a, the courtroom drama, what is going on there? And yes, as Christians, you know, because of our substitutionary atonement and just the kind of the way that we live, uh, we, we see that courtroom drama, God the judge, we're the one that's getting accused, right? And we always put ourselves there and we're always afraid because we're always going to get the death penalty and we're right about to get it until Jesus, you know, takes off the robe and says, no, stop, this one's one of mine and then we're all fine, right? That's how Christians tend to picture the idea of God being the judge. But for the Jews, um, they see this thing as the point from the point of the of the plaintiff. And I don't know if you've ever been involved in a lawsuit or if you've tried to sue or if you've if there's been a wrong that has been done to you in some way that you have sought justice for. You know that when you're in a dispute with another party and you can't agree, you need that third party. And you need that third party to be honest, you need that third party to be available, and you need that third party to be, you know, strong. So really, when, when, when the psalmist here is talking about judgments, it's more of, I guess these days we would call it more arbitration, although the courtroom drama still, still really applies, but just from this case of I have been wronged, and I need justice. And so this idea that God is going to come and create justice, well, that's great news, especially... For the oppressed. 
I mean, you say a wealthy person, you know, come and steals a poor person's land and just starts using it for himself. The poor person would have to take this case before the judge. But in order for the case to even be heard, it was not uncommon that the judge would have to be paid. Right? He's not just going to be listening to any old case. He has to pay bills too. Which, of course, the poor person would not be able to do. And the rich person would most likely have already bribed the judge anyway. So the victims of civil injustice would go a long time before their case was even heard. And then, of course, even when it was heard, they would run the risk of the judge being crooked. Which is, of course, not a foreign concept in our day. It actually happens all the time in our day. I was reading just a couple of weeks ago. Researchers uh, found a warrant for the arrest of someone connected to the kidnapping and murder of Emmett Till, which is the 14-year-old African-American boy who was murdered back in Mississippi in 1955 for allegedly whistling at a white woman. For 70 years, the family of Emmett Till has been waiting for justice. And, you know, the warrant was there. It had been issued. It had the stamp, had the signature of the judge. Just, it had just never been executed. It's never been served. They just had never gotten around to it. So the idea of a God who reigns on a foundation of righteousness and truth that is so powerful, so self-sufficient, he cannot be bought off, cannot be bribed, the idea that that God comes to judge, to hear cases, to settle justice, well, that would be the best news the oppressed had ever heard. Finally, justice is coming. Someone's going to set this straight. The last thing that Psalmist uses here to call us to rejoice is the reality that this king who reigns in righteousness and truth is, in fact, watching out for you. Let those who love the Lord hate evil, he writes, for he guards the life of of his faithful ones and delivers them from the hand of the wicked. This too is actually a consistent theme in the Psalms. The psalmists were convinced that God was always working on behalf of the people who followed his ways. Even though the psalmists were also, of course, very well acquainted with the ways things could go wrong. There are plenty of psalms throughout the book of Psalms about how it feels when bad things and bad people victimize the righteous. But even at those moments, the psalmist would always cry out to God out of this conviction that God was working on their behalf. That is what they were relying on. The same is true for us. The all-powerful creator God is always employing his limitless power, his inexhaustible resources to secure what is in our best interest. Because the truth of God is that he is always on the side of those who follow his ways and will always be working to defend them from those who seek to do evil. That is just who God is. So, you see, the psalmist has his reasons for telling us to smile. He has his reasons for telling us to be glad, for telling us to rejoice. God reigns. 
And he reigns on a foundation of righteousness and truth. His power is such, nothing can stand in his way. And he is coming to judge and to settle the unfairness of the world. And ultimately, he's always looking out for those who follow his ways. That's his reasoning for calling me to be glad, to rejoice. That's pretty clear here. What isn't so clear are what my reasons are for not listening to him. What my reasonings are for not being glad, for not rejoicing. Because I have to confess, I do spend a very large portion of my life not rejoicing, not being glad. And I'm not talking about the day that my mom dies or the day that I get laid off or the day that my good friend breaks my trust or the day that I hear of a tragedy in the life of someone I love. I'm, I'm not talking about those days. I'll, I'll give myself a break on those days. But the truth is, is that my life is not some steady stream of ever-worsening tragedies. I mean, yeah, I've had my share. Trust me. I've had my share of rough days. But mostly, mostly my days I get to be around people I love. I have enough to eat. I have a place to sleep at night. The sky is blue and my lemon tree hasn't died yet. <laughs> and it's on those days that somehow, even with all those blessings, I can somehow find a way to not be glad, to not Rejoice. What is my excuse on those days? And this is the question now where the psalmist gets down beneath the facade of my life and actually starts poking around in what I actually believe and those things of which I am actually convinced or not. It's at this point where the psalm asks me, what are the foundations that my little kingdom is built on? This is where the psalmist becomes a spiritual surgeon. He gets to meddling, as my friend Chris likes to say. Would you bow your heads? Close your eyes for just a moment. And I just want you to wrestle with that question. Just for yourself. The psalmist here is pretty clear. Lord reigns, let the earth, the distant shores rejoice. Seems perfectly reasonable and logical for him. What is your excuse to not to? And again, I, I know life, and I know there's enough people in this room. I know some of you are going through something really hard right now, so that's okay. Hear God's grace, hear God's mercy, and yeah, you can take this one off. Before the rest of us, what does my lack of rejoicing say about what I am convinced is true? Do I doubt that God is actually reigning over the earth? Am I afraid of his judgment? Am I not convinced that his righteousness and truth are all that something to be that happy about? 
Am I afraid that God is about everybody else? But not me. And that God's reign is good for, yeah, everybody else on the earth, but just not me. Am I too attached to my idols that I have entrusted my life to? I've entrusted my happiness, my identity, my meaning to. If the Holy Spirit has revealed something to you right now, would you just take a moment and confess it? God's not surprised. He knows who we are. He has compassion on us because he knows that we are made from dust. But we are invited into living in the reality of a good God of righteousness and truth that reigns over the earth. We are invited into a reality where we get to look up. And we let the truth of who God is be. Be the biggest truth of our life. Father, we do confess our lack of faith. We confess our lack of trust. We confess... Our eyes are on the troubles of this world such that we neglect, we don't give credence to the goodness that you have brought to us. And so we we just lay that before you knowing that you see it and knowing that you still love us and you're still, you're still working on our behalf even though our eyes aren't on you. And so we turn today for this moment and we make this act of will to declare your goodness and to rejoice, rejoice in your presence.